This episode discusses themes of depression and suicide. If you need help or someone to talk to you, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Exceptionally Average, the podcast that shares the real and inspiring stories of normal, everyday people. I'm your host, Ashley Mason, and today I have another incredible guest for you. Today, I want you to meet Matt Reynolds. Matt was just 12 years old when he lost his first friend to suicide. Yep, you heard that right. Sadly, the first of several. He was 16 when he lost his second friend to suicide, and later that same year, his favourite teacher too. By the time he was 20, he'd lost his fourth friend to suicide, all male. And over the course of the next six years, four more of his mates ended their own lives. Through all of that, Matt was fighting his own battle with mental illness, a battle that was almost lost four times over that same period. Eventually though, through therapy and spending time with other mental health advocates, Matt found his own voice and now he works tirelessly using it around the clock as a full-time advocate himself. Just a little disclaimer before we get into this chat, this was another episode that I recorded late last year. It's been pretty much a full 12 months, probably a little more. Uh, But again, like last week's episode, this was just too good to not share with you. But 12 months is a really long time in the mental health world. So just please bear in mind that some of the information may not be up to date. And of course, in the show notes, I'll put where you can find Matt and all of the up-to-date information. But for now, let's get into it. Here's Matt. So Matt, welcome. Thanks for having me. No worries. Thanks for being here. I'm very excited for this. Good way to spend a Friday. Yeah, you come very highly recommended by, of course, Maddie, who was in our first season. She's she's a jet. I was glad to meet her this year. So she's a a jet. She's She's a little gem. Yeah, Yeah. she's so good. So Matt, tell us a little bit about just briefly um, you and who you are and what you're doing now. Yeah, so, well, I'm 28 years old at the moment. I'm here in Melbourne, although I'm not very, in, I'm not in my own bed very often these days. Um, I run a non-for-profit mental health foundation or a health promotion charity, um, encouraging people to come out of the shadows of the surrounding stigma via self-acceptance, um, via lived experience, um, and, yeah, stories of hope, healing, and recovery. It was my rediscovery of hope that led me to be in the position that I'm in now. Um, And so for me, I just want to rewrite the dialogue and what it looks and feels like to to live with mental illness. I mean, a lot of people told me that you couldn't do things and um, you'd have to live this way and you'd fall into this category and this is the medication and all this that you'd have to take. So I want to rewrite what that looks like for other people in the country and bring them hope and acceptance the same way that I was, that I found hope. And that was looking at lived experience advocates that proved if they could, they could live happy, healthy, fulfilling lives. And so could I. So, yeah, Amazing. crossed with uh, my passion for uh, kids. I mean, kids were the thought that saved my life years and years and years ago. So um, when I combine the two, now we deliver workshops. I created and developed a workshop, um, a program for early intervention, work with kids as young as four, teaching them about their emotional uh, the emotions, the five Amazing. core emotions in their body and their mind. So um, identify those, control them and express them. So that's a real big passion area for me at the moment, working with kids as young as we can so we can prevent a lot of the things that are in my field of work. Um, outside of that, I guess 
I know I'm just I'm I'm learning a lot about myself over these these um, last couple of years now that I've got myself to a real place of wellness and yeah I'm obsessed with my mind obsessed with the body and um yeah working through what it looks like to to live my best life and it's all trial and error but I mean it's nice that I'm in a position to have that self acceptance and the awareness to know that some things aren't right some things are good and absolutely and to, to work es- out what's best especially given the story that you've or the journey that you've been on which we're going to chat yeah. a little bit about and we'll circle back to all the incredible work that you're doing at mindful Oz at the end but i thought let's take it right back, uh, back. tell us about little matt what were you like as a kid little matt um oh, energetic bubbly cocky smart ass typical 12 year old <laughs> um, i was just a just a typical young bloke i mean young, young boy and Full of beans, love my sport. Um, I've always loved my family. I've grown up with a really, really amazing family. I'm, my, my dad's my best friend and mum, well, I'm a mum's boy and I've always said I don't mind saying that. Yeah. Um, they're, they're the two closest people to me. They always have been from day one right till this very moment. Yeah. Were you an I've, only child or did you have siblings? No, nah, I've got another brother as well. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I've never lacked the support or compassion or care from my family and I, yeah. I realise that I'm one of the lucky ones that can say that. Yeah. Um, cause not everybody gets that same treatment that I got. I was brought up in an environment where I had the best opportunity to excel at, or, um, at anything that I wanted to do or achieve. Yeah. And they've always supported that. So, I mean, it's probably very, one of the most real reasons as to why yeah. I'm in this seat today. So that's it. And you said that you were quite bubbly as a kid and yeah. you obviously spend much of your life now on stages talking to people. Yes. Um, <laughs> were you like that as a kid? No. Like, were you always up the front no, I was always- center of attention? I was always center of attention. I mean, I was a class clown. I was very yeah. misbehaving, a lot, lot of misbehaving at school. Um, very, I guess, yeah, hard to sit, sit me still. And I guess when you read back at all the old school reports and which they did when they diagnosed me, you can, it's, it's clear as day. I mean, and we often write that off as just a boys will be boys, but when you look a little bit closer, the signs have always sort of been there. So in what way? Um, just my attention span, um, how busy I am. And that's never changed. Um, when you see like a young kid like that, that's so energetic and so bubbly, but also can't keep still or can't focus even on the things that he loved mm. um, or stay attentive to mm. anything. Um, I think the, the writing's on the wall there, but often young um, males will be fobbed off as just, oh, it's just boys, boys will be boys. boys. Yeah. And this yeah. is what they do and they misbehave all the time. And yeah. when they grow up, they'll grow out of that. But I think we have to look a little bit closer at that because I think for me, I found it really hard at school because I was misunderstood and I wasn't getting kicked out of the class because I was a a derogatory kid or a nasty kid. I was getting kicked out of class because no teacher could put up with me being a distraction to Mm. others, which I understand. Mm. But as I've always said, you never learn anything out in the corridor in the principal's office. And I don't think we need to punish people and punish kids, especially in their early years, for... Um, for being like that, I think we have to try harder to understand what situation they're in and and see the signs and see what's going on yeah. and, and trying to address that or appeal to their learning styles. Mm. Um, you said you um, struggled to focus on the things you love. What sort of things did you like as a kid? Were love you my sport. sport? Yeah. yeah, I love my sport and I still do. Um, I guess that what was it. What sport did you play? Sport was big for me. I was a cricket cricketer for a long time and um, until we got to a place where I was unwell and we tried to work out if that was the pressures of that sport because I was playing at mm. such a high level was a contributing factor. Um, I love my boxing. I love, I loved, loved Aussie rules. I'm more of an American sport fan right now. But, um, ah. yeah, outside of that, I've always just done, picked up and done whatever there was yeah. to do. Yeah. Um, always been a bit of a runner. Yeah. Um, 
my body's a little bit shot these days after a couple <laughs> of big charity runs we've done. But yeah, yeah, I mean, anything in front of me, I was yep. playing with and, and having a crack at. This makes sense with what you were saying about not being able to sit still either. You just like yeah, the it out energy's got to go yeah, somewhere. <laughs> yeah. And you said you were really close with your parents and your family. Run us through that. Like what was that relationship and that dynamic like growing up? Uh, I just mean I can't thank them enough. I've I've had the best of everything. I've had every opportunity to excel at, at sport, at um, to do whatever I wanted. I mean even when I hated the idea of school, even though I wanted to be so many different things that required me to go through school, the easy option for me was just get out of there. So, I mean, I said to my parents at the age of 17, 18, 17, I want to get out of here. Uh, I want to go do an apprenticeship and I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I just wanted to get out of there. And they and they backed me in. They said, you know, well, if if you're going to drop out, complete it. But they knew that anything that I've ever really picked up, I'm sort of obsessive compulsive. So if I'm doing something, I do it really well. Uh, normally until I burn myself out or I've really had enough of it. Mm. Um and, and plumbing was no different to that. So, I mean, they've just backed me in. They haven't tried to parent me as, as like or, you know, stop me from doing anything. I think that's the good thing about my parents is mm. I learn from my mistakes. I'm, I'm not afraid to fail and they're not afraid of me failing. Um, obviously, they're very protective of things, you know, if it's a really bad decision and there's always consequences that go along with that. But, <laughs> I mean, there's never been that 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 harsh punishment or that, you know, I've always had an open relationship with both my parents and I tell them a lot of things. Um, yes, I did hide them uh, uh, from a lot of my truths at one time just until I felt a little bit more comfort in that conversation. Mm. But, I mean, to this very day I speak to my dad probably two, three times a day, my mum, you know, once a day or many times a week yeah. and I'm comfortable with telling them absolutely anything and that might scare the crap out of them sometimes but um, <laughs> I'm just very lucky to have that because I see a lot of what goes on yeah. um, from very early stages these days when I'm working within primary schools. Yeah. And I know that not every kid gets that. Mm. And you were really young when you first came across sort of suicide and yeah. death. Tell us about that. 12 years old, I lost my first mate to suicide and I still remember getting told I rocked up to cricket training and I was on um, – used to have this bit of bitumen that all the, all us young kids used to play cricket until our dads were finished training and, and they really just gathered us around and I don't think they knew really how to address it with us um, and they told us all and I just remember thinking, how could anyone's life be that bad? That's all I remember thinking. How can anyone's life be that bad? I mean, I didn't, I just had such a great upbringing. I just couldn't fathom how that would be an option mm. um, and I couldn't fathom how anyone's life could be any different to the way mine was. And I guess in some ways, just because I'd had such a privileged upbringing, you don't get to see pain, you don't get to see grief, you don't get to see trauma. And while I'm very grateful for that, it also can be a, an, an undoing in, in some regards because when something does happen in your life, it hits you for six. Mm. But in saying that, when I lost Dwayne at 12 years old, I really was did. Was he 12 as well? Like no, no, he would, have, he would have been uh, 16 to 18. Yeah. But he played in our cricket squads. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I, I just wasn't exposed to anything like that. So I, I don't think it had the full impact on me until years down the track when I started to understand what mental health, what minor behavioural health or brain pain looked like. So, mm. um, yeah, I mean, it didn't really affect me the way that the, the rest have. Yeah. Um, and, and at that time, what was your headspace like? I mean, it yeah. sounds like you were, like hadn't really had any issues nah, at that point. I mean, there was not a problem in the world for me. Yeah. I was I was good. I you know cricket was going great. Schools 
school, school. Mm. But um, I had friends. I was a popular kid. And as I said, that uh, without sounding arrogant, most things that I picked up I was good at. So, I mean, and I had a supportive family and I wasn't exposed to what the real world really looked mm. like. I was 12 years old. So When did things start going south in your own head? Probably would be about 15, 16. I mean, the pressures of cricket I definitely thought was something that were a contributing factor, but timeline therapy and, and work that I've done with professionals has said that yeah, there's a physical and emotional abuse that has been tracked back to around that time in my life and, and ongoing. And, um, yeah, I mean, I always thought that it was the cross between the pressures of cricket and stuff that were going wrong and you start to get exposed to some other things in life like relationships and alcohol and all the rest of that. But I really didn't understand what it, what it caused me to feel like that. As I said, it hits you for six because you believe, what have I got anything to whinge about? I've got the best of everything. And yet that's why you hide it because why would I go and tell people that I'm unwell or feeling this way because I don't – I sh- what have I got to whinge about? Yeah. You know, I should be Mickey Mouse. So I think that that's why I suppressed the original thoughts and feelings and I used to quiz mum every now and then and at, in third person and be like, knowing that blah, 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 my mate was going through this, mum, what would he be feeling like? What would be the signs? And my mum's probably not silly. She probably knew that there was something more to those questions that I was asking. Um, and then I lost my second mate um, at the age of 18 and that was when the questions with mum got a little bit more uh, serious and I walked in and got myself the help and treatment that I know I desperately required and um, it was out of sheer fear and worry of thinking that I was next because I was having suicidal thoughts and I always thought that I would go before that mate that went and um, it hit me like a ton of bricks. But to hear that every single person in the funeral was sitting there saying how selfish he was uh, broke my heart but it also just reminded me that you can't, Matt, how can you speak up about this thing? Look at the stigma that's attached to it. Like they're mm-hmm. angry at this guy for taking his life. So for me it was like I'm. there's not a chance I'm telling anyone. Yeah. So who, it was really hard. Who did you first tell? Straight into the psychologist. I went straight to the GP and I told him exactly what I was feeling and I remember the lady I got at the GP and she was so lovely. I don't think I've had anyone that's brought that much comfort to my conversation mm. in, in all the professional help I've ever had was other than that first GP. And I bawled my eyes out and told her all my truths that I was experiencing as worried and scared as I was to tell them. And uh, my growing up in a country town, you, when they write you a script for medication, diagnose you with depression, uh, that word and that medication and that script spreads like wildfire. And unfortunately for me, my mum works in the pharmacy, so uh, there was no hiding it from mum. So I just yeah. got home that night and I put the script on the bench and it said it is what it is. And she and I remember mum saying, do you really need this medication? Is this, what, is this really how you're feeling? And I said, mum, I need it. I'm struggling. And she backed me in to take that medication and only if I had have listened because, I mean, not that I'm against medication, I don't want anyone to think that listening to this, but the side effects that I've had from medication, I thought they only existed when you took medication. Unfortunately unfortunately for me, I live with those side effects probably for the rest of my life um, and some of those side effects have done me a lot, of, caused me a lot of pain, a lot of, a lot of damage, um, a lot of embarrassment. So, I mean... Yeah, I should have probably when mum was saying that probably looked into what I was taking and if there was other ways that I could have been managing my well-being Mm. more than just walking in and doing what we thought was right and that was to see a GP and get help and uh, you think you're doing the right thing but Mm. I really wish I didn't. What's it like sitting in that GP's office uttering those words for the first time? Because I imagine that's when it becomes quite real when it goes from being outside your head to 
telling another human being. Yeah, I mean, I'd gone online and I'd looked at the K10 test on the Beyond Blue website and I'd read Beyond Blue things and I'm going, this shit, this is me. Because you, you don't want to believe it. I'm going, geez, I'm ticking every box here. Um, and you do the K10 test and it's just like a, you know, 100% shit, I got depression. So it just confirms what you thought and then you go in and tell someone and I just remember bawling my eyes out and it actually felt really good to tell someone. It felt like the weight of the world was off my shoulders and and I guess that's how a lot of people feel is they get given a script and medication and a diagnosis and they're like, oh, now I can deal with it. But at the same time they're being given a diagnosis that now they've labelled themselves um, where a lot of it's situational mm. and then a lot of them are taking medication that they don't need. Yeah. And when you take medication as strong as what some of these are, especially the dosages that I used to get, like they gave me 250 milligrams straight off the bat because of the severity of what I was feeling. Um, and that 30 days of, of, of that chemical making its way inside your system for the first time throws a spanner in the works. And the, the side effects, I'm one of the unlucky ones, I guess, if you give me a list of side effects that are going to come with this medication, I guarantee I'll get all of them. Um, and I know I'm, that's not the case for everyone, but it was for me and it caused me a lot of drama. I'm like that the suicidal ideation for the first 30 days was, was horrific. Um, and again, you've, you, we, we think we've come a long way now. Well, let's go back 10 years when I was diagnosed. No one was talking about it. Yeah. Um, and I tried to talk about it and a lot of people turned their back on me and a lot of people still don't talk to me. You know, I carried a lot of shame and was was mocked and all that that come with it 10 years ago. And, I mean, people, people are worried about talking about mental health now. Yeah. Let's go back 10 years. In and, a country town. Yeah, in a country town where yeah. everyone knows everyone, especially when you're the popular kid that has plenty of friends and is good mm. good at sport and does all that. It was difficult yeah. and being a, being a male. Did you, let's go back to your friend that committed suicide. Is that Jake? Jake was the second one at 18. Yeah. yeah. Did you know that he was having trouble? I know you said yeah. something before that you thought you would probably go first. Like is that yeah. a conversation you two had had together or? Yeah, well, me and Jake had a similar sort of friendship group. I went from prep to grade six with Jake and then we split different high schools but still in the same town. So I used to be out of a weekend and speak to Jake and I knew that he had a few troubles that were, were going on and I, I won't go into them without um, family permission but mm. um, I knew what he was going to going through. I didn't have an understanding or acceptance for it myself. Um, and again, 10 years ago, you just don't talk about it. And so you, I guess I understand where people are coming from when they say they're scared to even ask the question of someone that is struggling because they don't know the answer. And that's how I felt 10 years ago. Yeah. As much as, you know, I knew some people that were going through some unbearable amounts mm. of emotional pain, I didn't know what to say to make it better. So I stayed clear. Mm. Um, so that yeah. was sort of the, I suppose the turning point for you that sent you off to the yeah. GP's office. Oh yeah. Did you get psych help from there too or was it just medication? Yeah, so um, I did. I've seen a psychologist. I've seen so many of them. Um, and again, I, I just never found any that made me feel comfortable. I felt like I felt like they needed, I needed them. There was no connection and, and the cause of um, poor mental well-being is a disconnect between belonging and connection and love. So when you sit in an office and you don't feel belonging, connection and love, mm. how the hell on? Are they meant to help you? Yeah. And I just felt like I was being judged. I felt, I just felt like crap. And I don't mind saying that this is not a shot at psychologists, but I think it's it's nice for people to understand that the whole message out of anything that I say today is to understand that you've got to recognise that you are your best teacher. Mm. You are the person that will help you um, more than anyone. Mm. 
So while it's nice to seek out professional help and support, it needs to be complemented by an overall wellness plan. And I didn't have the understanding for that either. Mm. So we're not taught it. No. And I suppose it's one of those things too, because I speak to a lot of people through this podcast, but also through work as a physio and you know, it's it's hard because people, A, they it's hard enough getting them to a psychologist's office because yeah. there's stigma and then they get there and exactly like you said, they didn't connect for whatever reason, whether yeah. they're just like on different playing fields or just different personality types. Yeah. I suppose it's like anything, like people go to see physios and they don't connect with That's them. Right. And I think it's probably helpful for people knowing it's yeah. it's nice hearing that you had a it's not nice, but it's it's it's, good, a, lesson. it's, it's a lesson hearing that you had a hard time. Yeah. And I suppose that's something for everyone to take away. Because if people are listening, I want them to know a lot of them go in, they'll tell their story, which is traumatic mm. enough when you don't really know how to articulate it. Mm. So I went in and told the GP and then you bounce to a psychologist and it's just like, so tell us what's going on. Okay, I'll tell it again. Mm. It's painful. Mm. And then he sits there and barks at you and tells you why you feel like that. I'm like, hang on a minute, that's why I'm in here. And then why are you sitting on the fence? Why is your thought process like this? And mm. he's getting down my throat. And then I'm like, well, I'm going to another one. So you go to another one and then you tell them. It's like three times now I've relived my pain and trauma. Mm. I've losing my mates mm. and told you that I'm suicidal. And then they're picking up phones and trying to get you in a hospital. Mm. And it's just like, well, I can't really be honest in these places because every time I tell them that I'm experiencing a suicidal ideation, they don't understand that that's not a call. That's not a, you don't need to ring the ambios and get me. Yeah. handcuffed and sent out of here. I just mm. need you to listen so mm. that I can get these thoughts off my chest. And I just want people to understand through my story that seeking professional help is fantastic, but understand that it might not be the first go. Mm. Understand that there's, yeah. t- you know, to find the person yeah. that makes you feel comfortable is yeah. bloody hard work. Yeah, the odds of you meeting someone on the street and clicking the first time that's you right. meet them. I mean, like, yeah. you really have to ask anyone that's on Tinder, right? Like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> like Takes the odds of the swipes. first person you meet being a, like a genuine connection and then being able to Correct. help you are slim. Like yeah. they might be a great psychologist, but they might not be the one for you. That's right. And there's yeah. a lot of psychologists that don't like that I advocate this way, but it's not a shot at them. The only reason that they don't like the way I'm advocating is because they feel guilt. Mm. Now, if the shoe fits, the shoe fits. <laughs> but I'm not saying that they're bad people. I'm saying that not everyone, you're not going to mm. be able to help and heal everyone the same yeah. way I won't as a lived experience yeah. advocate. You people can help will, some of the people some of the time. That's right. Yeah. People will appeal to my way of advocacy. Some won't. Yeah. But I think it's our jobs as people who care about other human beings is to, if you can't help them, not to try and force something or send them out the door with a script and medication and no understanding for what they're throwing down their throat. Mm. So unfortunately I've lost two mates in the last 12 to 18 months that have been given medication because they thought that, that was the right thing to do and they've taken it and they've died within 10 to 15 days of having that medication when it's really that's the toughest time I've taken it. Mm. And it breaks my heart. So, I mean, it's not a shot or a stab at anyone, but I'll need people out there who are listening that are going through this pain that are thinking about seeking help to know that it's not a one-size-fits-all and that there is other alternatives and, and the best teacher that they'll have on their journey will be themselves no matter how hard it is. Mm. So, yeah. Let's go back to so that those psych experiences obviously weren't particularly great for you in the <laughs> early days. So what was that next few sort of months and years like for you? Oh, I just wanted out. I just wanted to get rid of that pain in my head. I had no idea how to and I just thought that the only tangible um, way to stop the pain in my head was to take my own life. Um, and before I did that, I was like, well, maybe moving state, maybe starting again. So 19 years old, I remember I asked my dad, I'm like, Dad, I'm going to Queensland. Mm. And I think I told him that there was so much work up there, I was going to get this awesome pain job. Because you would have been a plumber by that stage, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah apprentice. but I wasn't qualified. Mm. 
So I was like, there's this awesome paying job. I'm going to put the plumbing apprenticeship down for a little bit and I'm going to go make some money and I'll return to the plumbing apprenticeship, I promise you. And that was a complete lie. Lie, absolute lie. I just wanted to escape the pain that I was in and I, th- I thought, you know, maybe some sunshine, maybe some a new town where nobody knows me and can crit- critique the moods that I was in or what I was experiencing or the fact that I'd shared it with some people and it had spread around town like wildfire and, you know, there was comments and stuff made on Facebook about go take another pill, mate. Like, you know, there's all this sort of stigma that was associated with it. So mm-hmm. for me, I just, there was two tangible options at that stage and that was to move state or to take my own life. And I thought, well, let's do, let's try the first one before we, you know, let's try moving states before we go to the extreme lengths of that because I knew it left a devastation mm. on the people when when that happens. I'd seen it and sat in funerals and mm. seen the impact it made. So I jumped and, on a plane. And at that time did you feel like you were burdening your family yep. or friends to Huge. any extent? I've just been at a self-development retreat for um, last week, uh, two weeks ago for four days and my core limiting belief and has been for as long as I can remember is thinking that I'm a burden. I've got three core limiting beliefs and was, I've got more, but there's the three that are main ones for me is feeling like a burden, worthless and failure. All three of those strike a chord when you think about telling your parents exactly what you're experiencing. I'm going to burden them. I'm worthless because why is this son that's got everything like feel like this and I'm a failure for the exact same reasons. So the thought of uh, screaming from the rooftops that I needed help and I was struggling was not a chance, wasn't even an option. Mm. So I was lucky that my dad said, you know, he gave me the plane ticket to Queensland and I said that this is what I need and that's that's the love that I've got from my parents and that's what I was trying to say at the start. He just backed it in and he goes, well, if that's what you want to do and this is what you need, let's do it. And I jumped on a plane on like eight hours notice with a backpack um, on my back and, and bugger all else and just started fresh and I moved to Queensland but soon figured out that, you know, when you move town and everyone wants to know why you moved town and, and you're just not living in your values, like my number one core value is honesty. And uh, when you're sitting there and telling everyone that you just wanted to be in Queensland and the sun and a new start, but yet you deep down you knew you were lying, mm. you're not living in integrity. And I was lying to everyone. So what did you do up there? I went and joined a football club, which was probably a saving grace in a lot of ways because I started to meet some people that had some at least some interests with me. So I got to know people in the town very quick. But, I mean, you can mask it for a little while, but then the same things that I left in Victoria, funnily enough, followed me on the plane and that's because they're in my head mm. and uh, all the thoughts and feelings and emotions that I was going through quickly come to the surface and those uh, next couple of years after that I heavily self-medicated and, and drank a lot of alcohol and partied a lot and I never did that because I liked the idea of partying. Uh, it was because I was trying to fit in and it was also because it was masking the pain that was going on inside my head. And I know at some point in Queensland you ended up living on the streets. How I did, did. 2000 and, 2013 I ended up homeless for three months in Mackay. Um, Mackay was where I was finishing my plumbing apprenticeship and I knew enough people in Gladstone that I didn't want to be seen living that way. Um, I had a car but I just, I again, you just feel like you're a burden on every single person you come in contact with and I had that many people I could have moved in with, lived with that loved me up there. Same way if I only made one phone call to my parents and said the state that I was in, they would have done anything. They would have flown up in within the hour. But you don't. You don't tell them because you don't want to burden anyone else with what you're experiencing. So, you know, I lived for three months off the street um, between Gladstone and Mackay for, yeah, for three months and it was just a, just a shit time. It was just hard. But, I mean, no one would have picked it because every time the weekend come around or any time I was around people, I was uh, self-medicating. And that self-medicating and, and spending money and um, 
I guess it's the first signs of my mania, to be honest. I used to get $3,000 a week as a, as a as a worker on the Curtis Island and that's that's obviously a big pay packet for someone that's 19, 20 years old and I would blow every single dollar of that. Um, and a lot of it was shouting other people or just giving. I've always been a giving person. That's what makes me feel good mm. um, or belong. So that when you belong, you're not a burden. Um, so, yeah, I did a lot of that. But, yeah, and I just masked things and hid things and did that very, very well. And you are very good at it. And I know over that time in the article I was reading, the interview that you did, you were still like making calls home to your family. And so like yep, quite literally week, no one knew you were living on the street. Days, every day, every day, every week. Um, I was talking to every single person in Queensland. I was hanging out with the boys every night. But you get very, very good at hiding it. And that's why I just reiterate every time I advocate anywhere around this world and, and especially in this country is to, to look out for the people that are smiling. Don't worry about the people, not don't worry about the people that are not, but we forget just uh, how well people can hide that and mask that mm. pain and it's that smiling depression. I was going through an unbearable amount of emotional pain and I thought about suicide every single day 10 to 15 times, how I could do it, when I was going to do it, when would best fit, who wouldn't find me, what's the what's the most painful way to go, what's the least pain. I used to do all this um, and then hang around the boys and they'd have no idea. I ring back home and check in with my family, everything's good, everything's fine until um, – I lost another mate to suicide and I remember sitting on the balcony of the house that I was living in when I was picked up off the street by the family. And um, I said to, I always remember questioning dad again, like third person sort of comments, knowing that the comment was coming from like asking for a mate sort of thing. It was for me. Um, and telling dad, dad was like questioning as to why this person would take their own life. And dad, you know, didn't really understand the whole thing. And I, I said, you know, people feel like, they're a burden on every single person they come in contact with. And I said, and I finally opened up to my old man and basically said, this is why I don't share a lot of what I'm experiencing because I feel like a burden. Um, so I, th- I, mem- I remember being very emotional telling him that for the first time. But, yeah, just any sort of breakthrough where you could bring some comfort to the conversation that allowed me to tell my truth and even if I had to do it in third person just to see their response as to how they would react. Um but, yeah, I was very grateful for the family that took me in off the street. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here and I, I pay them. Um, I talk about them in every single talk I do around the world because it's the act of one one girl and her mum that enables me to do and have the impact around the world that I have because I wouldn't be do, I wouldn't be here without them. So. Tell us about that story because I think it's quite a beautiful one. Yeah, we talk about empathy and apathy all the time and I think it's important. Apathy, the ability to see someone that's uh, down, out, broken, upset, a mess, a shade of the person they once were, and we we look at them and we see it every day. We see it out here today on the streets. I'll see it, and if you walk down the CBD, you'll see it. We walk past people that are in, in emotional pain um, and you can visibly see it, and we walk past them and we go, well, that's not my problem, that's theirs. And when you stop and think about that comment, we know we, oh, I don't say that. Well, that's exactly what your actions are saying when you walk past someone that's down out on the street. Oh, I can't help them. I can't offer them anything. That's their problem, not mine. Keep walking. And that's what happened to me and it happened every single day when I was homeless. I mean, I had people walk over the top of me and step past me and then, you know, there was um, a young girl in Queensland that I knew knew well from going out and partying and, and she got word that I was living on the street and she reached out and said um, basically that you don't have a choice, we're housing you. And I was obviously kicked back off that and didn't want to be a burden to her. So it's like, no, I'm not, no, nah, no, nah, not doing it. Blah, blah, blah. And then her mum intervened and said, 
get your ass in here, you stay in here. And then when I got back from Mackay, I drove back to Gladstone and they rolled up the garage door um, and they decked out a double. They lived in a two-story, the single mum of five kids. So as if she didn't have enough shit going on without incorporating me into her life. But this is how beautiful she is, like to take someone in off the street that you don't know crap about that's going through the pain that I was going through, but they knew it mm. and they still took it in and loved it unconditionally. Um, I walked into the double garage because they had no beds left. So double garage, they've carpeted it. They've set a bed up. They've hung all my clothes because they've got hold of my clothes. They've put fridge, freezer, mirrors, paintings in a double garage. I mean, this is probably the nicest place I've ever stayed. <laughs> and um, they just love me. And, yeah. uh, I mean, years later I asked Holly, Holly is her name that took me in off the street, and she wanted to buy a hoodie for Mindful Oz. And um, she wanted to pay for it. And I was like, you're not paying for it. You saved, <laughs> you saved my life. And I'd never asked her, but I said, Holly, why why'd you just do what you did that day? Why would you save my life? I'll get emotional saying this. Why would you save my life? And she goes um, something along the lines of uh, we seen something in you that you know that we knew that you couldn't and we wanted to be able to, to get you to a place where you'd be able to discover it. We knew mm-hmm. that you had so much more to offer this world. And, um, yeah, I mean, I found it. <laughs> through, through yeah. them saving my life. So I'm just very lucky, very grateful, um, and I try and honour that through my speaking gigs all around the world every single day because yeah. everyone pats me on the back and everyone will tell me that I'm doing good work and I get awards and all this sort of shit, but I don't, I'm not even here without that family. So, you know, the acts of one person and that's choosing empathy over apathy, mm. that's one person that has a choice the same way me and you do this morning when we wake up is every single time we we interact with anyone, be that a stranger, a colleague, a friend, family, um, we have the opportunity to choose love over hate. We have the choice to choose empathy over apathy. Um, and But we don't. Mm. We don't. We, and, and she did and she saved my life and that's the impact of one lady. Mm. Now I go around the world and I've impacted over 250,000 people in 32 states and three countries. That's because of one lady. That's the power of one person. And I just can't express that enough because... Again, I get all the pats on the back, but it's not me. It's not me. That's her. I'd like to ask you, because I've never had the opportunity to, as someone who's lived on the streets, what's helpful and what's not from people walking past? Because I I know myself, right? Like yeah. if I walk past someone homeless, like yeah. you instinctively, like like you said, like you look away or you like walk because like yeah. either I don't have my wallet on me or yeah. I like I do I give you food, do I give you money, do I take like, do I help you or yeah. are you going to get angry or like? Yeah, it's as, hard. It's yeah. difficult. And this is what we just need educated people about. As I said, the human being is wired for belonging and connection. Um, only my mentor, Heather Yelland, always says the only thing that we ever want is to love and be loved, heard, seen, felt and got. And I couldn't, I don't know a truer word spoken. So if you put that in context of anyone that's living on the street or living in a mansion, we just want to be loved. We just want to connect. We want to be felt, seen, heard, and understood. God. Um, so for me, I know when you, I'd lost my sense of belonging and connection, even though my parents were amazing and everyone was so good, there'd been some sort of disconnect where I didn't feel comfort in people, in me telling my truth to people. So the ability when someone bent down and had a conversation with me, like Holly did, it, it felt like shit. I got belonging here. I got connection here. She cares. She loves me. 
but yet we walk past these people because we think we've got nothing to offer them. I don't need dollars. I still, I've never wanted money. And I, I, I volunteer at Cots Christmas on the Streets with Rose. And she does this beauty, she does drops um, to the homeless in, in the CBD. And she's, she knows them by first name. And every time they see her, she, like, we have the opportunity to walk around with sanitary items and sleeping bags and clothes. And every time I've been on a, on a run with the Christmas on the Streets family, um, I've never had anyone take a sleeping bag, never had anyone take sanitary items or anything. All they ever want is to have a chat, to have to feel loved, to felt got and understood. I mean, they've not one person has ever taken money when I've offered it. You know, I just, I think there's a beautiful message in that. It's just people just want to feel connected. They just want to feel like there's some meaning left in the world. And that's the same way I felt when I was suicidal. Just show me there's something beautiful left in this world and I won't do it. Unfortunately, on all those occasions, there wasn't. Mm. And and I'm lucky to be here. But, yeah, I just can't. It's just very simple, I believe. Like I think we've been getting it wrong for so long. We think chemical imbalance. We think this. We think that. You know, it's caused by technology. It's caused by this. No, 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 no. Belonging and connection and love. That's all this human mm. body is wired for. It's all we mm. want. You take that away from someone, that's where, that's where, they, that's where they're found. Mm. So... And I think it's there's so much stigma around people that live on the street. There is that you know they've fucked up their life somehow, yeah. or they've obviously yeah. gotten into drugs, or they've obviously like just blown yeah. all their money. And but not one person wants to sit there and question as to why they took drugs. Yeah, you know, I was I had that for a long time. I self medicated heavily, and people go, "Geez, Matt, what are you doing drugs for, you dickhead?" And it's just like, well, hang on a minute. Why was I doing drugs? Do you want to get to the bottom of it or do you want to like help someone out or why is, ask mm. the questions, why is someone led them to get to that point in their life? Mm. Why is someone choosing that instead of this? But we don't. We just judge. We just seven times, Australians are seven times more likely to find a negative than a positive. So, I mean, the evidence is all there. We just need to love people no matter what choices they make mm. because there's nobody that can't be loved once you hear their story. We all carry shit in our lives. We all walk around with stuff that's that we've done, mistakes mm. we've made. Yet for some reason we pretend that it's sexy not to show it. Mm. And there's one small step between the people walking around with shit in their lives and have a roof over their heads Correct. and people like you that that's right. end up on the street. Yeah, I mean, I was there by choice. Mm. I could have at any stage made a call. But what needed to ignite that call for help? Just someone to show me some love. Mm. Why are these? Who? How do we know that these people on the streets of Melbourne right now are not in the same boat as I am? Mm. And the only one we're going to find out is by having to connect, connecting with them and showing them that they have some. There's some meaning left in this world. Yeah. And if they don't want to talk to you, that's fine. But get down as Rose educates all the kids that go through it. Um, does the family runs with her, which is a beautiful thing. Is get down on their level. Don't look at them from six foot up while they're sitting on the street. Go down and sit next to them. Ask them if it's okay if you'd like to have a chat. Hold that space for them. If they don't, they don't. But if they do, what have you lost? A couple of minutes of your life, what have they gained? Maybe their life. It's a very beautiful thing that we all have unlimited amounts of and that's the ability to care, to support, to show value and to love people. Um, and that's the only reason I'm here. Let's go back to you and your story after your time with Rose and her family. What happened from there? Did you come? I mean, you obviously ended up back in Melbourne. Yes. So what did I reached that time out look like for you? Eight and a half months of living with the Alexanders up in Queensland and um, I just got to a place where I started to find a little bit more acceptance for what I was experiencing. Sorry, a little bit more acceptance for what I was experiencing. 
I still had no idea what to do about it or how to combat what I was experiencing in my head, but I had acceptance and I think acceptance is the solid foundation on which I've built my life. Um, once you know that it's there and you stop kicking back off it um, and just own it, um, things get a lot easier. So I returned home to um, Victoria in uh, Essendon. I lived in 2014, joined a football club and started to make my way back on the path to wellness. So just got back around people that I knew and grew up with, started playing footy again, which I'd had a spell off. Exercise is a no-brainer for people that experience, you know, what's it? it's a no-brainer for anyone really, but um, I, I'd stopped doing all the things that make you well. And when I got myself started taking the right steps, started to own who I was and what I was experiencing, I started to look more into what else um, would help. Um, I started to reflect a lot, journal a lot, practice gratitude a lot. And slowly but surely I got myself to a place where it wasn't so hard to get out of bed every day. Yes, I still had the same thoughts and feelings that I've always had, but now that I can get out of bed and I'm taking left foot, right foot, what can I do about it? So I seen an advert in the paper in the Herald Sun for a charity that was doing um, a fundraiser and I wanted to get involved. I didn't have the voice like I do now for advocacy. I was petrified of telling my story because every time I'd done it, someone had shut me down or, or mocked me or shamed me. So one thing I could do was help out at a fundraiser because I had the ability to run. And um, unfortunately for me, the run that they were doing was 235 kilometres around the Bay of Victoria in four days. <laughs> and uh, stupid me, all in or not in at all, <laughs> I said I'm doing the whole lot. And um, I learned a lot about myself on that trip, but most importantly I found my belonging for the first time. I was hanging around a group of people that were at the charity for the same reasons I was. They care. They love people. Um, and when you've, I've always said purpose, belonging, um, my value and self-worth and they showed me my value and self-worth at that charity. They made me feel like I belonged, not fit in because mm. there's a massive difference in the two. And um, I had a purpose and that was to raise money. And for six months I got myself in, in peak physical condition and ate well and did all the right things. And slowly my brain got into a better state as well, funny enough. Um, we did that run and we raised 200K for, for mental health, which was fantastic. But, I mean, that was the start of my mental health advocacy. I found where I fit. I found where I felt like I wasn't a burden and that was given back. I always knew that that's the person that I was. I just didn't know how to express it. Mm. Um, and my, I found my why and that was to do the work that I'm doing. So, I mean, it's been a long journey. I was still so very unwell. I've had suicide attempts since. But um, every time I fail, I just learn a new way of which to to grow through that pain, um, despite of the pain. And... Um, yeah, just learn every single day in this field of advocacy what works for me and what doesn't and take onus for it because if I was going to be advocating for this stuff and, and being out there helping people and hearing people's stories, um, I had to be in a position where I could help them um, and also give them the tools back um, that I'd equipped myself with that I know worked. Mm. So I got really obsessive with the brain, really obsessive with um, mental illness and what it looked like. At that stage, I was still only diagnosed with depression, anxiety, and sleep insomnia. And sleep insomnia, they told me I'd never beat. They said, well, the, the severity of which I had it was horrific. I'd wake in excess of 500 times a night and two and a half hours of broken sleep over seven days. Um, I sleep eight to 10 hours now if I want it. So, I mean, I think every time they've told me I can't do something, it's like, <laughs> game on, <laughs> which is probably a good thing. And then I was I lost my uh, sixth mate to suicide in 2016, November 24th, and that one smacked me for six. Um, I was pretty unwell at the time myself, 
and I knew that I was living some sort of lie. I, you know, out there helping everyone, but walking away from every time I'd done an event or a speaking gig, knowing that I was going through the exact same things as the people I was talking to. And I didn't feel like that lined up with my integrity either of mm. the person I am because I wasn't being honest because I was putting everyone before me and you can't pour from an empty cup. So when I lost him, I sat up the back of his funeral, 15 rows back, four seats across on my right-hand side, um, and I had the most bizarre experience of my life. Long story short, it was also the realisation on the worst day of my life that something had to change and I couldn't sit up the back of any more of these stupid funerals. I couldn't do it and something had to change and if not me, then who? And I seen the thousands of people that were broken and I'm like, well, if I'm going to make a change in this world and I'm going to do it um, authentically, I need to go and get help and support. Mm-hmm. So I walked myself back in and got help and treatment. I was went and seen who they described as Australia's best psychiatrist. Bullshit. <laughs> and, um, I was handballed around to another five or ten psychiatrists because I was too hard, which is devastating to hear when they're handballing you from psychiatrist to psychiatrist to psychiatrist, making calls, not getting back to you. And it's just like any wonder we lose people when there's no accountability for the way in which they treated me. And I'm just lucky that I was resilient enough to keep going because I just lost my mate and there was no way I was going to put my family and friends through that. You spoke about the funerals and that's it's, that's something I wanted to touch on, like knowing that you were in a dark place at that time. Did you ever sit in those funerals and look around yeah. and wonder what yours would be like? Yeah, so that was the experience that I had in that funeral that I cut short <laughs> there, but I looked up and seen... Uh, his face on the screen, Sean's face on the screen, become my face at, a, at Epiphany, I guess. Um, it was the most bizarre experience of my life. 15 rows back, four seats in. Sean's face become my face. Sean's mum, Beck, giving a eulogy about how she just lost her son. All I could hear and see was my mum. And then on the faces of all these strangers in this auditorium, when I looked around, all I could see was my friends and family. And it was that moment then that I realised that I was one of the lucky ones. Um Everyone always questions me as to how I made a breakthrough and how I changed and what was my turning point. And I really can't give yet that because the experience that I had cost me six mates. Like I, I sat there and got the kick up the ass that I needed. Hey, Matt, you know what it's like to live at the bottom. What about we find out what it's like to live at the top because there's thousands of people in this room right now that are broken and we need to do something about it. And if you don't use the experiences that you've been, the six mates you've lost, if you don't lose, use that homeless experience. If you don't share what you know, we're going to continue to sit in these places um, and someone needs to do something about it and there's a reason that this has happened to you. And I think I always try and, and convey that to as many people as humanly possible. The world happens for us, not to us. When you stop and actually acknowledge what's going on around you and get curious about it, um, you can use it for your benefit. And, I mean, I know exactly why. I dropped out of school. I know exactly why I live with bipolar disorder. I know exactly why I've lost the mates that I've lost. It's it's led me to this exact moment. I mean, it's led me to the work that I'm able to do. And, yeah, I'd do anything in my powers to turn the clock back and and have a beer tonight with any of those eight mates that I've lost to suicide. But it's a beautiful thing to – I'm very grateful to be uh, any small part of, of their life journey. Um, and I can continue to honour their, their lives every single day with my voice right across the world, and I think that's a very beautiful thing too. So while they're not here, they are changing and saving lives, and that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So I'm very, very grateful for that. And, um, 
yeah, I just uh, I just sat at the back and said enough's enough, and uh, that was when my life changed. And I went and got the help and treatment that I needed. I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Um, I knew that. <laughs> I knew that. It was me that Did said. Did you really? The, yeah. Why? How did you? Because I was obsessed with the brain. I was obsessed with it, and that's how I got well. And even though I had a low that had led me back into being authentic and going to see a psychiatrist, I um. I was so equipped with understanding how the brain worked and how the behaviour um, went and I was like, well, I've got bipolar, there's no doubt about it. Um, again, you hide it because you're like, well, if depression and anxiety is hard to talk about, imagine what it's going to be like to tell people i got bipolar. But I was like, hey, if you're, if you're doing this advocacy thing and you want to do it well, you've got to do it properly um, and be authentic and people are going to relate to authenticity. Who gives a shit if you've got bipolar, Matt? 800,000 people in Australia do. So let's let's rock and roll with it, own it, accept it. Um, it's led you to this path. So I got the diagnosis. I was handed a shitload of medication. I was told that unless I took the medication, I would fall into a one in five suicide category, that by having bipolar disorder, it was a full aging process, not only of the brain, but the body as well. I was told that basically I was a defect of humanity, so it hurt. But I also, like I said, anyone that tells me I can't do something is like, Watch this. So he told me that I, unless I took medication, I'd fall in front of that one five suicide category. And basically, I, you know, I, I did what I thought I needed to do to control and stabilize the moods in my head. And I took the medication. Worst thing I ever did. I, I had um, auditory hallucinations. I got extreme paranoia. I was aggressive. I wanted to kill people. Um, I was, I had a violent mind, and I was lucky that it n- never acted out on any of that. Um, and I'm very self-aware. So it was exhausting to live with these thoughts and feelings, but knowing who I really was and knowing what this medication had made me, I was so, so um, set on making sure that other people don't do the same things. And so for me, I, I went off medication. I found a holistic approach to well-being. A strength-based model is what I work for, and I put wellness back in my hands because every single time I've given it to someone else, they've dropped the ball. I won't drop that ball. And I'll never, ever die by my own two hands. So that's a promise that I make to every single person when I speak and I've made to myself and my friends and my family. I still have those thoughts and feelings every single day. I just know how to control them. And while I don't always see the light at the end of the tunnel, I know it exists. So I'm able to now being obsessed again with um, my well-being and understanding bipolar and owning it, I just look at what people do that live with bipolar disorder and I find the things that work for me and I reflect on it every single day. And I've come up with a, a blueprint to wellness. Which is what? Uh, it's it's thorough. We've got a few hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's a it's a it's a 1440 minute approach to my day. And that sounds crazy, but um when we actually sit back and acknowledge how many opportunities there are in a day to better ourselves, maybe we'll start using some of them to better ourselves. So I don't use a 24-hour schedule because like if I booked in to do a podcast and I was here and it went, I booked it in for three hours and it only went for two and a half hours, well, then I'll sit on the couch for half an hour. But I book in minutes. And so when I find out that I've got five minutes in the day and practice gratitude, five minutes of meditation, five minutes of value alignment, five minutes of self-reflection, five minutes of compassion where I send some messages to some friends, 26 minutes of exercise a day, because that equals 12 hours of good positive brain health. Um, all these things, strenuous. I spend about three and a half, four hours of, of, of my day on my well-being um, and it's become a habit and it's that discipline that it takes of knowing that I don't want to do this stuff. 
but I know that if I do, I'm going to have a good day tomorrow or a good day today. Um, and I started to string the good days together and it was like nine months without falling into depressive state or a manic state. And I was like, shit, people have got to know about this. So, I mean, I created the Blueprint of Wellness, which is a workshop that I run for corporates and anyone over 16 years old um, to give them the realisation of how many opportunities they have in a day to make themselves or build themselves into a more resilient state. And I'm just waiting for the next phone call or knock on the door to tell me I've lost someone but I'm equipped and ready to go. Whereas for years I've just lived running, smashing a wall and trying to get back up again or being deep in a hole and trying to work out how the hell, where's the ladder? I've built my ladder and I'm ready to go. So I, as I said earlier, I know what it's like to live at the bottom, um, but it's a, it's a place on which I've built a new life and I, I don't know what it's like to live at the top, but I want to go there and I'm more interested in making sure that people follow me there. So it's given people the tools and techniques that I never had that I wish I did that help that help people get to a place of well-being like I have. And as I said, I still have really, 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 really tough days. I still flirt with the idea of suicide all the time. It's a part of who I am and I just own that and accept it. And some days are tough. Um, this, this life of advocacy has been tough on me. It's been tough on my friends. It's been tough on my family. Um, I know it takes tolerant people to hang around me, but as of um, as my mentor always says, when your why is compelling enough, there's there's nothing that's impossible, and that's just really how I live these days. Is just trying to work on myself every single day um, to be the best version I can be, but to make sure that I'm using most of those one thousand four hundred and forty mm. minutes to better the lives of someone else, because mm. that's the true meaning mm. of um, this thing we call life. I know you said you've lived with, or you still live with, like chronic yep. suicidal ideation. Yep. I had like two questions I'm trying to decide which one to ask first. <laughs> Mash them together. <laughs> first of all, like for anyone listening, like what does that mean? Yeah, so suicidal ideation means that I experience thoughts of suicide every single day. Um, they're a regular thought. Before anyone gets scared by the idea of that, it's it's understanding that by working on myself the way I have, when those thoughts come through, I'm able to recognise that they're not real. They're just a thought. And my thoughts don't have to become my actions. Whereas once they couldn't, once it was just like, well, yeah, like my brain was so powerful and it is, it's the most powerful tool we've got in our body. When it's working for you, you can conquer the world. Mm. But when it's working against you, it will conquer you. And Mm. I've seen that four times with myself. Mm. So suicidal ideation just means that I have an experience of suicidal thoughts every single day, but I'm able to control those thoughts and, um, as I say, though, I won't die by my own two hands. It's it's it's, it's understanding and recognising that it's just a thought. It doesn't have to become my actions and I know what I need to do to get out of this state and, and I do that with thorough work and discipline mm. and um, I just wish the same for everyone else out there that goes through the same thing because it's exhausting to live with those thoughts. Mm. Um, and I, it, it sucks when you think that I, that's the thought that I'm going to live with for the rest of my life most likely, but I know how to deal with it. Um, by putting the work in, but yeah, there's a lot of people out there that have never been taught what to do in those situations or to understand what it looks like to be well. And when you break a leg or break any bone in your body, what do you want the pain to do? You just want it to stop. And that's unfortunately the way with our minds. When our minds are broken or when there's trauma or grief or or a situation that's happened to us that's causing us an unbearable amount of emotional pain, they just want it to stop. And I understand suicide so well. I understand how the mind goes and 
I just wish for everyone to have the skill sets like I do so that they can equip themselves to come out of those situations or to be able to identify the problem, Mm. control it or express it. What advice do you have for anyone listening? And I'd I'd say particularly young people because I suppose at at that youth teenage age, like they don't necessarily have the foresight or Mm -hmm. maturity to to know what you know and to know that like yeah. you can live with this and you can yeah, go you through can. it and your thoughts aren't facts and they're not, they don't have to be actions. Like what advice do you have for anyone? I mean, if someone walked through the door right now and offered me a cure for bipolar, I'm not interested. And I want every single person, young or old out there to understand the same thing. The situations that have happened in your life have happened for a reason. They're sent to you as an action signal for growth and change. So it's about sitting and recognising what life's trying to teach us and using it for our benefit. Yes, it's hard. Life's not its not easy. Never has been but never will be. But it is simple. And when, as I said, when we stop and reflect and accept the position that we're in and ask ourselves what we can do with it, how do we control it, can I get rid of it, can I remove it, can I grow from it, we can work through any sort of situation or pain or trauma that we've experienced and use it for our benefit. I mean, I just, the only people that kick back off that comment of saying, well, you know, he's, he's mad if he wants to live with bipolar, he's an idiot if he, you know, wants to live with mental illness. But the only people that say that or think that are those that don't have the acceptance for what they're experiencing. You are who you are. They're only one of you. I mean, like how many sperm did we beat to be here? <laughs> You're meant to be here. There's meaning in everyone's life. Everybody has purpose and you will find it if you look for it. Mm. Be who you are unapologetically. Don't be who the world wants you to be. Ignore the haters, ignore the doubt, ignore the stigma, the shame. Work on you because you're number one priority. I mean, there's so many things that I could say about what you should do for your well-being, but I think it's just acceptance. It's just to be who you are. I mean, I, I live with the thoughts of being a burden and at you know at the self-development retreat the other week it was about learning. I'm sitting there in day two going, yeah, well, I know I'm a burden. How do I get rid of it? But it's not about getting rid of what we've got. It's about learning to love it. Mm. And now I'm like, yeah, I'm a burden and I'm going to have that thought from time to time, but that's okay because every single, if I did a pen and paper like I did at the retreat and I write down burden, but I talk about when was the first time I thought I was a burden? 16. What am I now? 28. What have I done in those years being a burden? And I've created bloody magic. So it's learning to love who you are Mm. because we can't we can't sit here and appreciate all the good things in our life if we're not willing to accept all the things that went wrong because it takes both to be the person we are. And if not bipolar, something else, right? That's right. Like everyone's got yeah, something. Yeah, I mean this is a weird analogy but um, someone said to me the other day, Does, do, you know, do you understand how it takes a caterpillar to evolve to a butterfly? They have to fart. They have to let go of gas. <laughs> Actually. So it's the same correlations <laughs> with ourselves is we have to go through the shit. <laughs> To get to the place that we're in. So if you want to fly, now unfortunately there's going to be pain. No person gets through this life unscathed. Mm. It's not easy. It is hard. But it's simple. How close did you come to not being here with those attempts? So close. So close. Um, Yeah, I'm I'm bloody lucky. I'm really lucky. Um, The thought that saved my life on my first attempt was the thought of having kids and that was mid-attempt and I thought I was gone. But the thought of kids in all of the non, all of the noise that was going on through my head that I couldn't make sense of, to have one clear, it was like my my head stopped. 
and mid-attempt, which I won't say method, mid-attempt, the thought of just clear clarity come to my mind and it was a voice that said, Matt, one day you're going to have kids be here to see it. I remember it clear as day and it was just like do whatever you can to get through whatever you're going through right now. And I was mid-attempt, like it's too late and I survived. And that thought is what drives me and gives me energy every single day is the thought of having kids. And when you have a thought like that when you're 20 years old, it's pretty bloody bizarre considering I was single. Um, <laughs> but there's a reason that that thought come to fruition or come to my mind and I, I work with that thought every single day. Again, you can say, you know, why is that thought? You know, why? Or you can understand that the world's happening for us, not to us. Mm. That's my why. I want my I want kids and I'll keep going until that moment and I want my kids to grow up in a world better than the one that exists today, so I do this work. I don't want my kids to grow up in this world where we look at people with apathy, where we we hate rather than love, where we choose negative over positive. I want my kids to grow up where they can see the lonely kids sitting in the playground and my kids run over and put their arm around them and say, hey, I got you, because that's a choice that we make every single day, human belonging and connection, and I want, I want my kids to grow up in a world where that, is um, that's a priority from everyone because it's the true meaning of life is to live in the betterment of others. And if we all have that approach, when you fall, I got you back. When I fall, you got my back. But at the moment, we're not all living in the betterment of others. So when people have fallen in this country, no one's there to hold them up. And as it says on our mind floor shirts, I, I can conquer the world with one end as long as you're willing to hold the other. And it's so true. I don't need all this I don't need answers, advice, comparisons from everyone every single day. What I just need is to know that the people there love and care about me, I'll do the rest. And that's the same way that every single person out there listening to this should go about it too. You can have the best of everything in the world. You can have the best teachers at school, but ain't no one going to lift that pen and write for you. The work belongs with you. There's <laughs> a little quote I wanted to touch on before we get into probably the hardest five questions you'll be asked in your Ooh. life. No, I'm definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> One day for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's a quote on your website. I don't know if you know it off by heart. I thought I'd ask you first if you happen to and put you on the spot. Which is it? Uh, the truth <laughs> is it's a battle not easily won. Yeah, I do know that. I wrote that back in 2016 when I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. So I won't try and memorise it, but you can go for it. I can go for it. <laughs> But I imagine it sounds so much better in your voice. (laughs) The truth is it's a battle not easily won. It will take change, determination, understanding, but most importantly, acceptance. But you are not alone. I've spent many years at war with myself. I'm doing it. I'm managing it. And so can you. So I'm here to tell you if there is a fight worth winning, this is it. You are loved. You are worthwhile. And your presence here is important. Be here tomorrow because you are unique and we love that. Let go of fear. Let life strengthen you. You You will will be great great again. Yes, yes, I love yes, it. yes, yes, yes. Gave me goosebumps. It's been a while since I've uh, looked at that post or that on the website. But, yeah, I thought I was a burden for a long, long time. I believed, oh, I still think that I'm a burden from time to time and that's okay because I'll dance with it, manoeuvre it and turn it into magic. But, um, I, yeah, I, I guess it's the same for a lot of people out there right now thinking that they're a burden on people. Um, that's the natural way you feel when you're dealing with all the weight of all these emotions put together. But, the only burdens in my life are the people that mock a pain they've never experienced and uh, they're still out there. But no, you don't have to listen to that shit. Just, again, um, when you get to that place of feeling, waking up every day sick and tired of feeling sick and tired, it's not a way to live. Feeling shitty is not a way of being. So, I mean, just reach out, get the help you need. 
and for the people that are listening, reach in and give them the help they need. We can't be expectant of everyone that's going through that unbearable amount of emotional pain to scream from the rafters that they're hurting. We're all well, we're all healthy as, as our caregivers and our brothers and sisters keepers. It's our duty and job to check in with them, reach in. Don't wait for them to reach out because they won't do it. So you're not a burden. Um, you will feel like that from time to time, but they're the best yet to come. I love it. Uh, so the five rapid fire questions. Ooh. Are you ready? I'm ready to go. Rapid no. fire? Does that mean I'm going quick? <laughs> no, it's okay. Most people <laughs> don't actually go that quick. <laughs> I was, when I first started, I was going to come up with some sort of catchy name for it and it's just stuck with rapid fire because clearly Done. like tw- 20 episodes so down the track comes, now, I haven't come up with anything more exciting. First thing that comes to mind. First thing that comes to mind. Okay. Um, so number one, how do you define success? How do I find success? Uh, or what, is, what does success look like for you? Success looks like for me is just to keep giving um, and to keep being who I am and to, to live in growth and acceptance. I mean, don't get, I don't want to get comfortable with being the person I am or the work that I'm doing. There's always something we can be, the work, there is so much more that we can be doing. I mean, my favorite, one of my favorite quotes is the difference between how much we say we care and how much we show it is the difference this world aches for. We all talk about all these things we care about, but how many of us are acting on them? And I care about myself. I care about the people around me. So I'm going to continue for the rest of my life to dedicate myself to giving back, but also dedicate to looking after myself as well in the meantime. So I want to just keep seeing what that looks like. That's success for me. Number two, what gets you out of bed in the morning? The thought of having kids. Not breakfast. Not breakfast. No, no breakfast. So so we spoke off the microphone about the fact that you don't eat breakfast. (laughs) I don't eat breakfast. Food is not a priority in my life. I'm not turned on by food. The thought of having kids is just my big energy and drive and I just can't wait for whatever that whenever that day is. Um, I mean, they saved my life and they don't even know it. So number three, what's your favorite quote? Um I figured out that if I could bring happiness to as many lives as humanly possible, then I would always get what I want and I'd be happy. Number four, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? Invisible. Yeah. Why? Although I don't like feeling like that, but it would be nice to be not seen sometimes. Yeah, to go about doing what you do without anyone knowing. I mean, yeah, I don't know what else. Nah, I think that would be it. I think. <laughs> I think that's the idea of it. Yeah. You just be a voice. <laughs> just- <laughs> yeah. I mean, sometimes it's just this world's hectic. Mm. This world's busy. And just to just be still and not seen. Um, I know I've just contradicted everything that I've said because you just want to be seen. <laughs> but just in a world that's busy, in a world that's negative, in a world that's filled with so much hatred, to just be not seen um, and to be in a space where you can learn to love yourself without any distractions would be beautiful. Number five, what are you doing when you feel happiest? Um, happiest. I mean, that's a, this is weird because, I mean, being around kids. Yeah, being around kids. Yeah. I feel most alive when I'm boxing. I feel my, my happiest when I'm around kids. Yeah. Love it. Well, I suppose that's where we'll finish it. Yeah, I love it. Thank you so much. All done. Thank you. And thank you for being here today. But most importantly, thank you for being here in general and doing what you're doing. And I think 
it's going to start a lot of important conversations and it's certainly changed the way I think about a few things just from this conversation today. So I hope that anyone listening to this feels the same, which I'm sure they will. So thank you for all the work that you're doing. No, thank you for having me. It's important and it's incredible and it's great. As I said, I mean, it's easy for me to get the pats on the back, but who's the one that's uh, running the podcast and starting beautiful, meaningful conversations and it's not just me that gets to be on the other end of this. It's so many um, other people that you've had on these podcasts will change the lives of other people with what they do and there's uh, one person that's facilitating that and that's you. So you are directly changing and impacting (laughs) lives and you should be very proud of that. Thank you. Thanks for being here. What an incredible human being. I absolutely love this chat. I told you it was worth the 12-month wait. You can, of course, as promised, find Matt Runnels on Instagram at matt.runnels. Uh, you can find Mindful Oz at Mindful Oz, full with a double L on Instagram. I will, of course, pop in the show notes all of the details about where you can find both of those sites and Matt's website as well. As I said at the start, 12 months is a really long time, but I couldn't not share this episode with you. So please head to Matt's page if you want some more up-to-date information especially in the mental health space. That's super important. I will be back in your ears next week, guys. We're only two episodes from the final episode of the season. Wow, where is that time gone? I can't wait for it. I'll see you then. Bye.